Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Good morning. Again. (laughs) Thank you for reading and leading us this morning. Uh, We are going to be in that passage. We're getting close to the end of, of Hebrews. And this morning we're going to look at a delightfully short passage, just six verses. A lot of our passages have been longer, but this morning it's just six, which was a treat for me, preparing it. I hope you can join us tonight for uh, the potluck praise and prayer event we're doing. Um, Hey, you you will be glad you were here if if you're able to be here. We're going to have have a time of fellowship with uh, whatever we all bring to eat. And then, uh, and then a time of praise and prayer here in the auditorium. And uh, I invite you to, to be here for that tonight. Uh, let's get into the text. Let's pray first, then we'll get right into it. If you pray with me, please. Uh, Lord, we, we look to you now and pray that you would instruct us here in the words of Scripture. Thank you so much for the book of Hebrews. And uh, we would just ask you to please uh, bear witness with our hearts, just like Alex just prayed, to, to hear what you have for us today. May the words of this frail mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing this morning in your sight. This we dare to ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. World Magazine ran a a feature piece recently about a young couple who live in Italy, a young Italian couple. Their names are Liberato and Linda Vitali. And uh, the Vitalis are, are Christians, they're believers, and they live in an apartment in Rome, the capital of Italy, the great city of Rome. Uh, They're married, and they have two children. They have a four-year-old and a one-year-old child. Uh, That's it. (laughs) That was the story. Uh, The Vitalis are a young couple with two children. Uh, The article went on to describe how the choice that these two Christians have made is, uh, is really rare. It's increasingly rare, the decision they made to get married and have two children. It's really rare, especially in Italy. Turns out that Having babies is one of the most countercultural things you can do in modern-day Italy. Uh, to be fair, it's not just Italy. Uh, this is actually going on in a lot of uh, the Western world, including parts of the United States. Uh, but this was an article that focused on Italy, and, and, uh, and they talked about Italy, the impact on Italy. In fact, according to this article I was looking at, Italy has been suffering uh, a demographic winter. That's the term that's being used, a demographic winter. You say, what does that mean? Well, I could give you a bunch of statistics, but what it comes down to is there are not enough babies. There's not enough babies being born in Italy. Uh, The replacement rate uh, is uh, 2.1 babies per woman. So if a population is going to stay just stable, uh, fertile women, women who can have babies, need to have 2.1 babies per woman. That just keeps the population even. For the last 35 years, it has been under one and a half in Italy. Uh, Last year, it was 1.2 needs to be 2.1 just to keep the population even. Uh, This is causing all kinds of problems. Demographers see problems coming down the road because of this, all kinds of problems Italy's facing. That's not my point this morning. That's not, we're not going to take the time to go into all that kind of stuff. The reason I start there, the reason I start with the Vitali family is that they are a good example of what it looks like in general to be a Christian. And that was kind of the point of the article. They're a good example of what it looks like in general. And what I mean is, we live differently. We live differently. Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, are called to make different choices. We're called to live differently. 
Not with everything, of course. We, we eat the same foods and we live in the same sorts of houses and drive the same sorts of cars that other people do. But in a lot of other areas of life, followers of Jesus are called to live in ways that are very, very different from the world. Uh, we have reached the home stretch here in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we have just two weeks left today and uh, whenever I finish the book. <laughs> we have just a couple of weeks left here. And we've looked at a lot of theology, right? A lot of dense theology in some cases in this letter. Uh, we've talked about, you know, temples and heavenly things, all these different things that are in this book. Now, as we get into to the end, what for us is the last chapter of the book, our author wants us to see how intensely practical all of this is. And we've made lots of practical applications along the way, but in terms of his letter, this is where he really zooms in on some specific practical issues that we face as human beings. And that is, we certainly have that in verses one through six. We'll have it in the next passage as well, but you really see it here. Uh, and and he, he focuses in on, on ethics. In fact, I think that's what I would, chapter 13 is all about a Christian's ethics. Uh, in the next passage, really what the book ends with are what I'll call corporate ethics. And so we'll talk about some implications for the church in verses 7 through 19. But in today's passage, in verses 1 through 6, we really have what the focus is, is personal ethics. And so you have the personal ethics of the Christian life, all of which flows out of this life of faith that we've been talking about for so much of this letter. And so what we see as we look at the personal side this morning is that Jesus changes the way we relate to life. That's what uh, this is supposed, that's what this passage is telling us. If I were to find a single thread that ties verses 1 through 6 together, it is that Jesus changes, he transforms how we relate to all the different aspects of our lives. And so we're going to look at the, the passage we heard before, verses 1 through 6. And as we go through these verses, I want to show you five areas of life, five specific areas where Jesus changes how we approach that area. He changes our relationship to that particular thing or that particular group of people. It'll, it'll be a different one with each one. Uh, we are called to go against the flow. We're called to go against the flow in these five areas. So uh, let's, let's take a look at what they are. Number one. Uh, the first area that Jesus changes is that Jesus changes how we relate to one another. That's number one. He changes how we relate to our fellow believers. And this is what we have in verse one. Uh, verse one is very short. It's a very short verse. It says very simply, let brotherly love continue. Let brotherly love continue. Uh, I always like it when I see this word in a biblical passage. I like it because it lets me tell you uh, what the Greek word is. The Greek word is Philadelphia, which is a fun one for Americans because we have a city. One of our great cities is Philadelphia. It's a, I mean, if you look at it in Greek, it's Philadelphia uh, in Greek. Uh, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, right? The city in Pennsylvania. I don't know if they always act like it, but it's the city of uh, brotherly love. Uh, that's not just their motto. That's what the name of the city means. Love is the phila part. And then Delphi is the, it's the root of the Greek word for, for brother. So Philadelphia, brotherly love. Uh, and so what is this word described? It's, it's, it's the uh, affection of a sibling, right? It's, uh, you could even call it family love. That would be what this word means. Uh, verse 1 says, let that continue. Let that continue in your life. Uh, the author uses a present tense, and in Greek, a present tense means it's not just that it's happening in this very instant. The sense of it is that it's, it's an ongoing thing. It should characterize the way we live, because as we live our lives, we're always in the present. Right now, we're in the present, and 
Now we're in the present. And so, so a present is, is a continuous action. And so he's saying, don't just, uh, let, don't just show love to your brothers once in a while or you know, kind of at certain holiday times of the year, but rather do it all the time. Let it continue. Let this be what marks your life. Um, I'll give you a little more of a definition. I told you what the word means. Uh, Phil, uh, this word, brotherly love, uh, describes a, a proper disposition, kind of a dictionary definition, a proper disposition towards one's own kinfolk. And so if you and I were Greek-speaking people living in the first century and we heard that word, Philadelphia, we would think of how we treat our family members. That's what that word meant. And family was, was the, like, in, like it has been in our culture, family was the foundational building block uh, in that culture. And so it, this was a very important kind of love. Um, Greco-Roman culture taught and believed that you take care of your own. You take care of your own people, right? Yeah, yeah, you're loyal to your country, but, but blood is thicker than water. Have you ever heard that? Maybe even said it, right? Blood is thicker than water. Family comes first. Very much a, a first century value in the Roman Empire among Jews and, and Greeks alike. But then, right, so you got that. That's what Philadelphia means. You take care of your family. You take care of your, 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 your relatives. Along comes Christianity, and Christianity says that's how you treat your fellow believers, Turns out blood isn't thicker than water. Something's thicker than blood. It's your, 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 your spiritual connection to one another in Jesus Christ. Because that is what he's talking about. Verse 1 isn't about taking care of your earthly family. It's about taking care of your heavenly family. And so this goes against the flow in their culture. It, it raises that love for your brothers and sisters in the church to the same level as the love we would have for, for our, our, our earthly relatives. And again, you know, so I say that, and, and many of you here, especially if you are uh, very churched, if you've been around churches for a long time, especially healthy churches, you're kind of like, yeah, that's right. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take care of each other. But in its setting, this is radical. This is a radical ethic. It, it goes against the flow to say that believers should care for one another with the same uh, affection and attention that they would show for their earthly uh, that, they, that people would show for their earthly human families. But that is the claim here. That is what we're being told. So yes, take care of your earthly family. It's not that, that the church supplants those. There are lots of verses I could show you about how God wants us to take care of and honor our parents and all those kinds of things. That's all very biblical as well. But here the Lord says, do that for each other too. In the church, let brotherly love continue. So that's one way. Jesus changes how we relate to, 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 to people. In this case, it's how we relate to one another in the church. Let brotherly love, that sibling love, continue. Number two, second area Jesus changes, is that he also changes how we relate to strangers. How we relate to strangers. Jesus changes that one too. And we see that in, uh, in verse two. So verse two, he says, uh, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So the author does something very elegant here. Uh, in verse 1, he, he used this word I just told you about, brotherly love. He then makes a play on words in verse 2, and, and it gets lost a little bit in English, so i got to tell you a little more Greek here. Um, in, in, as you look at your Bible, the word hospitality is uh, actually a compound word, and the compound word means stranger love. 
So verse 1, we have brotherly love. In verse 2, he actually takes the Greek word for stranger and he puts it with the same word he used for love. So uh, Philadelphia, this is xena. Uh, what is it? It's uh, phila zina. I'm not saying I'm exactly right, but that's okay. Uh, but he takes the word for stranger, which is zina or zeno, and he puts it with the word for love. And so you have brotherly love, verse one, have affection for and welcome the people you do know. The next verse is stranger love, have affection for and take care of and welcome those you don't know. So, so it's, a, it's a striking kind of play on words. Love for brothers, love for strangers. Uh, those are the nouns. The main verb is a, is a, it's a negative. He says, do not neglect something or do not forget something. So, he, so what he says is, don't neglect, don't forget to show stranger love. Uh, in this, uh, we translate it hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to, to the people you don't know. That's the idea. And, and I, I'm, I'm belaboring this a little bit because I think it the biblical understanding of hospitality here challenges us. It challenges us because it's not our typical understanding of hospitality, not for most of us anyway. Uh, when, we, when you hear the word hospitality, when I hear the word hospitality, we usually think of that as something we show to people we know, right? That, that's how we usually think about it, right? And so we have a friend over for supper, Right? You know, maybe a friend from church, maybe a friend from work. We have somebody over from supper. We've enjoyed, we would like to get to know them a little better. We already know them pretty, you know, but we'll have them over. What do we say? We say that's hospitality. Right? And if somebody does that a lot, we say she's, got a, she's a very hospitable person. She loves to show her friends hospitality. That's a good thing. That's right. We should all do that. We should probably all do more of that kind of thing. But strictly speaking, when you see the word hospitality in verse 2, that's not what God is talking about. He's not telling us to have our friends over. He's telling us to have strangers over, to, to welcome. You know, maybe you don't have to start with having them in your house necessarily, although that might be a good place to start. Uh, but, but it's the idea of welcoming the stranger, not welcoming the people who are already our friends. He also gives us a reason for doing this. This author is going to give us, he doesn't do it with every one of the points this morning, but he does it with at least three of them. He gives us the reason why we should do it. And you see that in the second half of the verse. Uh, and, and the reason with verse two is um, we, we, some people have done that and welcomed angels, right? He says they have welcomed angels unaware. You've probably noticed that verse. That's one of those verses that sticks in your head because it's such an, an, uh, an interesting idea that we would welcome a stranger and not know it, but we would be welcoming an angel. I will say, I don't think we're supposed to take that verse as some sort of a, an indicator that every stranger we meet is an angel. Um, I think it's fine to have that kind of a spiritual mindset. We should be thinking that way. I think we're kind of told to do so here. But I also don't think it's the main point. You know, don't go angel hunting. I don't think that's the main point here. The main point is to remind us that this is what God's people do. Right? It's, it's, it's echoing chapter 11. Remember all those examples from chapter 11? We know our author likes to do that. He likes to get us thinking about the Old Testament. Well, that's what he does here. He says, yeah, remember, this has already happened. And if we're schooled in the scriptures, we go, yeah, that's right. That, Abraham did that. Right? At Genesis chapter 18, you can go read about it. Three men show up at, at Abraham's tent, and he welcomes them. He goes out of his way to welcome these strangers, and he learns later one of them's the Lord, the other two are angels. 
Uh, Lot does it in chapter 19 of Genesis. Uh, Manoah does it. Manoah is the father of Samson, less famous than those first two. But Manoah does the same thing in Judges chapter 13. Uh, Manoah welcomes two men that turn out to be angels. And, and, And so we have these examples in Scripture where the people, God's faithful people, welcomed Uh, welcomed strangers, and they were blessed because they did so. And so there's this idea that, so so yeah, sure, be cognizant of that, but but I think the, the idea is, what he's telling us is, this is what God's people do. God's people show hospitality to strangers. That's, and, and that's going against the flow, right? That, that's, that's going against the flow uh, to, to do it that way. You know, to, you know, it's one thing to, to love your friends, but then to love someone you don't know, that's, that's something else. Uh, this command, as we think about it, it applies, I think, to a church, right? It's a good one for a church to think about as we think about that, that's, that verse 2. Uh, a church cannot reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ if we don't welcome them. Right? You, you can't reach people with the good news of Jesus if you're not ready to welcome those people into your midst. Uh, and I, I, do, I believe that's one of the clear signs of a healthy church. A healthy church has a fundamental disposition of being open to and welcoming to uh, people who, who come into the life of the church, both in the short term and in the long term as well. There's also a challenge here, though. So, and I do think that the, the first application is for believers on, on that passage, or on that verse. But then there's also a challenge here for believers who may, for, for strangers who may not be believers. Because that's kind of the whole point. You don't know the person yet. You don't know where the person or people stand spiritually. They might be believers, but they might be non-believers. But the command still hangs there, right? It still hangs there to, to welcome those folks. And so Christians should have a welcoming. We should have a welcoming attitude there, too. And, you know, I was thinking, this is uh, perhaps a little dangerous, but uh, it seems to me this applies very directly to our national conversation about immigration. Right? You think, about, oh, you know, it's one of the hot-button issues these days. And you've got to acknowledge, as soon as you say the word, that there are lots of opinions about immigration. I probably have two or three myself, let alone everyone else in the room. And so it's, it's important to, to say up front that immigration policy is a complicated subject, but welcoming the stranger is actually very straightforward. It's very straightforward. It's right there in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality uh, to the stranger. And so if, if you're a believer, you, you don't have a choice on that fundamental level. You know, you can debate policy and build walls, don't build walls, set quotas, don't have quotas. You can go, you know, that's, that's policy. That's big picture stuff. But as far as our attitude, how we conduct ourselves as believers, we are commanded to welcome those strangers too. Right? Whether they, they come from Asia or Africa or Central America or Micronesia or wherever else they may come from. It becomes a very personal and, and local issue uh, in every community in the United States. So welcome the stranger. That's number two. And like I say, it, it defies uh, the conventional wisdom, it defies uh, in many ways. It goes against the flow. Number three, the third area that Jesus changes, is that he also changes how we relate to sufferers, those who suffer. Jesus changes our relationship with people who suffer. This is what we see in verse 3. He continues. He says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So there's, there's one main verb there, and it applies to two different uh, clauses. The main verb is remember. 
Right, it's translated remember here. And, and the word means to think about something or call to mind. That's what you think of with remember. But if you look at the different times it's used in Scripture, it's, it's not merely an intellectual remembering, like the remembering of a fact. You know, seven times, seven times six is 42, right? That's just a remembering. Uh, but this is a remembering where you think of the person so that you can do something for him or her, or you can help the person. There's a really good example uh, in Luke, Luke chapter 23, verse 42, and what you have is the, the, the story of the, thie- the two thieves on the cross, and one of the thieves reviles Jesus, but the other one puts his faith in Jesus, right? It's a very simple kind of deathbed sort of a conversion, but that man's in glory now. I think we have every reason to believe, and so that, that thief on the cross puts his trust in Jesus, and then do you remember what he says to Jesus? remember me. It's the same word we have here in verse 3. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And so he's not asking Jesus to just kind of remember his name or something. He's asking Jesus, welcome me, do something for me, bring, you know, save me. However he conceived of that, we don't know exactly the details, but, but he's asking Jesus to do something for him. That's what this word means. And so we're being told here when it says, remember those in prison and those who are mistreated, he's telling us to, to care for those people, right? It's not just kind of, well, some people suffer. It's, it's more of, a, of an attentiveness. Uh, I'm going to help them if, I, if and as I can. And he does, he, he focuses on two groups. So you got your verb, remember, and then there's two groups he highlights. Uh, and they're both groups that suffer, which is why I'm, I'm bundling them together that way. Uh, the first group is those who are in prison. Remember those in prison. Um, he's probably talking at the first level about believers, right? Believers who are being persecuted, because I think that's the immediate context of the letter and even what's going on here. Uh, but again, there's really no good reason to limit it. Right? This is why we have prison ministries. I mean, there's no reason to limit it to, to only those who are persecuted. Uh, this would apply to anyone who's in prison. Right? They're awful places, even when, when, when somebody deserves it. It's, it's not, uh, you know, as a general rule, our culture wants to kind of put people in there and forget about them. But God says, you don't do that. You go against the flow on that one. You'd be different. So you've got those who are in prison, those, those, whether persecuted or because they deserve it. And then the second group he, he talks about is those who are mistreated. Uh, those who are mistreated, the word means um, to suffer or be tormented, uh, suffer evil, I think is what it literally is the word. And again, I think the assumption is that the suffering is undeserved, and so we're thinking believers persecuted for their faith, but you can make a pretty good case just with the, the sense of the words that the principle applies to anyone who's suffering, anyone who's, who's struggling. He says, remember, remember those who suffer. Uh, he, also gives, uh, he also gives us the re- a reason of sorts here. He says, uh, do this uh, because you have solidarity with them. That's this idea. Uh, do it as if you yourself are suffering with them. Right? So remember the prisoners as though you yourself were in prison. Right? So it's not pity. It's, it's more of a sense of, of solidarity with that person. Um, remember uh, the mistreated as though your own body is being mistreated. And which is an interesting statement, and I think that that's actually my main grounds for saying that he's talking about believers on the first application here, because it, it's true, right? If a believer is being persecuted for his faith and he's like in prison, uh, my own, I, he's, my, he's part of my body, right? It's that whole principle of, of the body of Christ. If one suffers, all suffer. And, and so that's what he's, he's pulling on here. And so we as Christians are called to suffer with those who suffer. That's the principle. We as Christians are called to mourn with those who mourn, to struggle with those who struggle, to suffer with those who suffer. And this goes against the flow. 
right? It really does go against the flow. It, it, that is not, maybe we start, we think of it, it's kind of a, it, it's been inculcated now after all this time into Western culture that, that, that that's what people should do. But that is not a given by any stretch of the imagination. It goes against the flow. And maybe it's, it's easier to just describe it this way. Think of it this way. What is the typical human response to suffering? Especially when you leave us to our own devices, what is the typical response when we see other people suffering? I would submit to you that for the most part, our typical response is to put our head down and keep going. Right? That's what you do. Get away from the suffering as fast as you can. Put your head down and keep going. And and I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty here, but to to me, the perfect example, is uh, the classic example, is the homeless person. Right? You ever been to a big city? You see a homeless person on the street? What do you do? Probably you put your head down and keep going. That's what I've done. Many of you have done it too. And, you know, you can say, well, why? Well, maybe because we're embarrassed. Maybe because we're in a hurry. Maybe it's because we're just overwhelmed by the need. I don't know how to help you. I can give you $5, but I, it, I, don't, I know too much to know that it's actually going to help. But whatever my excuse is, whatever I tell myself, I see the suffering and I put my head down and keep going. And I would submit to you that is the default human response to, to, to suffering especially when it's not our own. You know, our own, maybe we will, we'll, we'll pay a little more attention, but, but when it's someone we don't know, when it's a stranger, put your head down, keep going. Along comes Jesus. Along comes Christianity, and Jesus says, don't put your head down and keep going. Look up. Remember. Remember those in prison. Remember the mistreated. Remember those who are struggling, and, and help them. Do what you can to help them. And so that's, that's a big change. That's a big change. Our faith in Jesus changes the way we relate to people who suffer. Number four, the fourth area that Jesus changes uh, is that he changes, and you can see there's almost like a, a scattershot approach to this. Each one by itself isn't necessarily connected to the one before, but, but they're all tied by this idea of transformation. Uh, because I say that because the fourth area goes in a totally different direction. The fourth area is marriage. Jesus changes the way uh, his people relate to to marriage. He changes the way we relate to marriage. That's what you got in verse 4. Let's read verse 4. He says in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So there's two commands uh, here in uh, in verse 4, and they're both related to marriage. Uh, The first command is general. The second command is specific. So the second one kind of flows out of the first one. The general command is to honor marriage. That's what he says. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Uh, The word honor, this particular word, means to uh, count something or consider something as precious or valuable or costly. Right, so you're going to elevate it. It's, it's valuable. It's, it's, it's precious. And so that's the, it's a very simple command, really. He says, value marriage. Value marriage. He says, don't, don't look down on marriage. Don't belittle it. Don't treat it as unimportant or secondary. And, and this applies. It's not just for married people. This is kind of an instruction to Christians in general. Whether you're married or not, make sure that you count marriage as valuable. This goes against the flow. This one definitely goes against the flow. I mean, I think of that couple in Italy that I started with. Uh, They live in a context, right? That's why it was a five-page story in World Magazine. They live in a context where it's increasingly uncommon. They weren't the only ones. I don't mean to give that impression, but they were a good example of a trend in that culture. 
But they, you know, if you think of those two, Linda and, uh, what was his name? Uh, Liberato. Liberato. Linda and Liberato live in an increasingly, in a world where it's increasingly uncommon. Right? Among their peer group, among the people they know, it's increasingly uncommon for a, a man and a woman who love each other to get married. Right? Most, most wouldn't do that in their setting. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, so do we. Let's not pick on the Europeans. We, we live in the same sort of a setting. Uh, just this week, I was uh, looking at a, a study, and it was a recent study came out of um, Bowling Green State University. They have some kind of a family institute there, and so secular school, though, but uh, they have a, an institute that studies uh, family in America. And uh, they just did a study that re- they re- just released it like a year ago that found that 76% of couples in the United States, and they were working with a recent data set. It was 2015 to 2019, so in the last 10 years. Uh, 76% of couples who got married in the U.S. had lived together first. They, they'd lived together first. Um, that's, that's not honoring marriage, right? That, that's, you know, let, let's try it out first. That's not valuing marriage. That's not elevating marriage. And, and that's a general population study, but the numbers aren't a whole lot better for Christians. Uh, according to the Institute for Family Studies, which is a, um, a Christian group, uh, they recently released some data that, said that, uh, that showed that 54% of evangelical Protestants, so I'm not talking Catholics, mainline, I'm talking folk like us, people who say these are the scriptures, this is God's word, 54% of evangelical Protestants cohabited, lived together with a romantic partner before they got married. So more than half of Bible-professing Christians. A lot of people do it, right? That's what the numbers show. A lot of people do it. But that's, it, it, it flies in the face of what verse 4 is saying to do. And so you see it in our practice. You also see the devaluing of marriage in, in uh, people's attitudes, right? The way we talk about marriage. You know, you know, what's the trope? A lot of people will say marriage is boring, <laughs> Right? After you sow all your wild oats and kind of you know, get everything out of, out of your system, then you get married. More, marriage is for boring people. Boring people get married. Uh, others will treat it as a, a path to, and you've, we, I think this has definitely become a big trend in our own culture, marriage is, is merely a, a path to self-fulfillment. It's just another life goal. You know, you got the checklist of things people do. I'll get a job, I'll get a house, I'll get a dog, I'll get a marriage. Maybe two if, if the first one doesn't work out so well. Right? It's just a thing on the, on the checklist of life. And what verse 4 is telling us is that's not how Christians do it. We're supposed to go against the flow. That's not how we're supposed to think about marriage. We're supposed to hold it in honor and treat it as something uh, eminently valuable. That's command number one. So it's the big picture general command. The second command is the specific one that flows out of the first. And the second one applies very specifically to sexuality. It's about sex. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. This is probably obvious, but that little phrase, marriage bed, is a euphemism for sex. It's a a euphemism for sexual union. Uh, If I were to show you the Greek word, you'd even recognize the word from a a word we use to describe the sexual act. He's talking about sex there. And and he's talking about it. What does he say about it? He says that sex is a marriage thing. That's what verse 4 is saying. Verse 4 says, sex is a marriage thing. If you're not married, you shouldn't be having sex. And if you are married, you should. That's what verse 4 says. And I will say parenthetically, just so nobody gets stupid about this verse, um, sometimes there's health issues, right? Sometimes a a couple is not able to, you know, or maybe seasons sometimes in a marriage where they're not able to be intimate with each other. Please, please, please do not use this verse. I've seen this. Please do not use this verse to pressure your spouse or or try to, you know, manipulate your spouse. That is not the intention of verse 4. 
That's not the point of that verse. The point of that verse is to give us this principle. It's a principle that sexuality is a good gift from God and it belongs exclusively in marriage. That's the specific command. Needless to say, that also goes against the flow of, of our culture. I mean, you may uh, affirm what I just said, but in a lot of other settings, uh, folks would be laughing me off the stage, right? Put me on a college campus or in a lot of retirement homes for that matter. Have somebody up and say the things I just said, they'd be laughing the guy off the stage. Maybe someone would be tweeting about what this fool just said up front about sex. Ha ha ha. But, you know, that's, that's what the Bible says. That's what verse 4 says. It's what the scriptures say in general. When it comes to sex, Christians are supposed to live different. The author also gives us a reason for this one. I told you he likes to give reasons. He doesn't with all of them, but with this one he does. Uh, he gives us a reason to honor and, and, uh, and keep the exclusivity. Uh, the reason here is uh, pretty intense, actually. The reason is that God judges sexual sin. He says, keep sex within marriage because God will judge those who don't which is very striking, you know, and I was thinking even about like what guys like me do, a lot of times we appeal, you know, so we're trying to help people see that they should save sex for marriage and keep sex within marriage. A lot of times we appeal to the practical reasons. And I've seen, I see studies like this all the time. You know, it'll be better if you wait, right? We tell the young people, you know, it'll be better if you wait for marriage. Or, or you'll see these studies, married people have more satisfying sex lives than, than non-married people do. Or, or, or we'll say, well, you can't get pregnant, you know, you can't get pregnant if you abstain, or you're not going to get an STD if, if you abstain. And, and those practical reasons are true, right? A lot of those practical reasons are true. There are very good reasons to, to save sex for marriage. But that's not what verse 4 goes that's not where verse 4 goes. I actually find that convicting on how we talk about these issues. Verse 4 says if you don't obey God, verse 4 does not say if you don't obey God, sex won't be as good. It says if you don't obey God, God will judge you. He will judge us. That's, that's what it says. And, and you can think through what that means. If we don't repent, it'll be in, in hell. If we do repent, it might be in consequences we experience. But that's the principle that hangs there. God judges sexual immorality and, and adulterous behavior. So, What's the reason? Why should we do embrace this different lifestyle, this radically different lifestyle from the culture we live in? Well, because we, we want to avoid the judgment of God. That, that's the reason that's given there. So, live different. That's the message. Live different. Be faithful in this area and save it exclusively for marriage. Finally, finally, the fifth area Jesus changes is that he also changes how we relate to money. Money. Number five, Jesus changes our relationship to money. That's what you get in verses five and six. Verse five says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money or from love of money and be content with what you have. Here comes the reason. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So there's two commands again in verse 5, just like there were in verse 4, and uh, the commands complement each other. I think there's kind of like that parallelism thing where, where they are both saying the same thing from two different ways. And so with this one, we kind of get two sides to the same coin with, uh, with the two commands. The first command in verse 5 is to uh, keep your life free from, uh, literally the word is money love. 
Keep your life free from the love of money. And so again, it's striking because our author does something, uh, he goes back really to verses 1 and 2 uh, in terms of his, his wording. So we had brother love, verse 1. We have stranger love, verse 2. Now we have money love in verse 5. And that's literally what he does. He takes that same root for love, philos, and he puts it together with the word for money. So you got brother love, stranger love, money love. The difference from verses 1 and 2 is that this is one we're not supposed to do. So we were supposed to love our brother, we are supposed to love the stranger, but we're not supposed to love money. So, that, so that's hence this translation, let your life be uh, free. And he actually, it says your way, like your path. Let your path, your walking through life, let your walking be free from the love of money. When I was in middle school, um, I remember reading this novel. I don't know why, this novel's always stayed with me. Uh, The novel was called Silas Marner. And we read it in English class. They told us it was an English classic. Has anybody else read Silas Marner? Or is it just something they tricked us with in Fonda? Okay, there you go, a few people. They told us it was really great. Anyway, it was a good book. I'd recommend it if you go find it, at least as I remember it. Um, But this this little novella uh, chronicled this man named Silas Marner. So he was the the title character of the book. And uh, Silas Marner is an older man, and he was a miser. So when you meet him at the beginning of the book, he's very very rich, but he's very uh, selfish. He's, he's, no, he's like known for being a miser in the community. And there's this scene in the beginning of the book, and it's an old-fashioned book. I think it was written in the 1800s. And there's this scene in the beginning of the book where you, to give you a feel for what this man's life is like, where he, he locks his door. And they were told this is what he does every night. He locks his door, and he closes all the windows in his house, and he goes to the hiding place where he keeps all of his gold, and he's got a lot of gold, and he gets the gold out, and he sits at the kitchen table, and he counts it. And there's kind of some psychological, he'd been robbed when he was young, and so there's some, some stuff going on in his head. But at this point in his life, this is who he is. He gets, he closes all the doors so nobody can see. He gets out his money, and every night he sits there and he counts his gold coins to see if they're all still there. To me, I've always thought, that's money love. Right? That, that's money love, right? And what does our text are? Our text says, don't be like that. <laughs> don't be greedy. Don't be covetous. Don't be materialistic. Don't be selfish. Keep your life free from from the love of money. The complement to that, you say, okay, what what does that look like in the positive? You give me the negative, what's the positive? The positive of that same coin, as it were, is to be content. So keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. So instead of being greedy, be content. Uh, that, that what you have, it literally, it means the present things. That's literally the word. The, the, the present things, the things you have. So it's what you have is a good translation. Let what you have suffice. Let it be enough in your heart. And that's not to say that we don't work that we don't, you know, we're, there's a whole lot in Proverbs and a lot of other places, you know, I mean, even First Thessalonians, if they won't, if they won't work, they won't eat, he says, if they, you know, if they won't eat, don't let them eat. If they won't work, don't let them eat, Paul says. So, so absolutely, there's a whole Christian ethic of, of working, striving, doing our best, lots of passages about that. But then you got these passages, which say, as you think about it, as you feel about it, our fundamental heart attitude should be contentment. Let what you have, he says. Let what you have suffice. That definitely goes against the flow. That definitely goes against the flow in our culture. Uh, indeed, this one might be the most countercultural of all the things we've looked at this morning, even more so than, uh, the, than number four. Uh, I mean, for starters, contentment is not good for the economy. 
It really isn't. I was listening to this podcast the other day about why the, the, the big recession they're expecting hasn't happened yet. Turns out we've, we've avoided a recession so far because we keep spending like we're not in trouble. <laughs> that, that was what the podcast was all about. I didn't understand all of it, but that was the basic message. But if you need a, a, you know, I mean, a more, a, a, an easier example, just think about this week, right? This week, right? no one is going to send you a Black Friday email that says, hey, you've got enough right? You're not going to get an email that says, remember, as the holiday season begins, you probably already have everything you need. No messages, no emails, no, no nothing, no advertising like that. No one is saying that. Well, except for verse 5. Verse 5 is saying that. Verse 5 says, uh, be content with what you have. Resist the pressure to acquire evermore. The author also gives us a reason for this one. I love this reason. Uh, The reason for number four was kind of heavy and scary, but the reason for number five is wonderful. It's a promise. Because the reason for this one is God's got you. The Lord's got your back. You can be content because the Lord's got your back. Right? The Lord will take care of you. And he makes this point by quoting two more passages from the Old Testament. We have had dozens of passages quoted from the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. Unless I'm missing something, these are the last two. The last two Old Testament quotes are in today's passage. Uh, The first one, I believe it's the end of verse 5. Yeah, it's it's the second half of verse 5 there. That one comes from Deuteronomy 31, and there's some other passages that echo it. Uh, it But but Deuteronomy 31 is probably the clearest one. And then the second one, the quote in verse 6, comes from Psalm 118. And I won't go into all the context on those quotes, but the point he makes with those two quotes is, God will take care of you, So how is it we can resist money love and be content with what we have? Well, it's because the Lord will take care of you, and so you don't have to be afraid. The Lord will take care of you, so you don't have to be afraid. That's the reason we're given to be content. And I was was convicted on this one, too. You know, if if we're honest, I I do think quite a bit of our materialism comes from fear. I mean, sometimes it's, it's greed and avarice and covetousness and all the rest, but, but sometimes our, our materialism comes from fear, especially if you grew up poor, right? And however you want to define that. If, if you grew up in a situation where, where you, you, you felt like there, there was lack, there wasn't all that you, you felt like your family ought to have had or you would have had, if you grew up that way, a lot of times there's a fear that gnaws at the back of your mind. And the fear is, we're not going to have enough. We're not going to have enough. And so if you had that experience, you know what that's like. You know what that's like. And so there's this temptation. How can I stave that off? Well, the temptation is to accumulate. I can stave off the fear by accumulating more. We didn't have enough when I was young. Well, I'm going to make darn sure we have enough when I'm old. Verses 5 and 6 say you don't got to do that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to protect yourselves by hoarding or accumulating. Instead, we can, it comes back to that same theme we've been hammering. He's been hammering all through this latter half of the letter. Instead, we can, we can have faith. We can trust the Lord. Let him take care of our needs. We can trust in him and not be afraid. Well, I began with the, uh, the Vitali family in Italy. And this article, if anybody wanted to read it, I'd be happy to make a photocopy for you. But uh, it, it talked about some of the challenges this couple faces. And, you know, here they are living in a big city, one of Europe's great, great cities, and they are trying to raise two little kids uh, in, in a big city setting like that. And, and it just talked about some of their challenges. For example, uh, strollers are a problem. Strollers are a problem. Apparently, the elevators in Italy are not built for strollers. <laughs> They're all small. And so you've got to fold it up or just carry it down the stairs. Strollers don't fit in elevators 
in, in, in Rome. Uh, same thing with public transportation. Just try to take a bus in Italy or a subway with a, with a stroller for a couple of little kids. It's really hard to do. Apparently, the parks aren't designed for children either. They've got lots of dog parks, but very few playgrounds for four-year-olds in the city of Rome. But the hardest part, according to this article, may well be the attitudes. And, and this, this couple described how hard this is for them. A lot of the people they interact with in their daily lives see their two beautiful little children as more of a nuisance than a blessing. Uh, the article told how, I think I mentioned, they lived in an apartment building, or they live in an apartment building, and uh, their next-door neighbor is a, a man in his 30s, not married, not attached to anybody, just doing his thing, and uh, he, the kids really bug him, and he's got a little practice. Every time one of the children makes some noise, he bangs on the wall. Well, if you've ever known any four-year-olds, you can imagine he's banging on the wall a lot, right? And that's, that's what they live with. They're constantly having this guy next door trying to get him to make their two little kids be quiet. But they press on. They press on. They press on because they believe what they're doing, right? They know that they're right. Yes, they're going against the flow, but they are uh, living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And to me, it was such an example of, of, of what we were going to talk about today and have now talked about today. We are called to do the same thing. We're called to go against the flow. Living for Jesus means living differently. So keep at it, right? There's that tone of encouragement again. Keep at it. Don't quit. Don't compromise. Keep being different for Jesus.